open up to uh, Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is where we'll be this morning. And let me open up with a, just another word of prayer. Ask God to, to give us understanding this morning. Father God, we thank you for the scriptures. Without them, Lord, we would be lost. Without them, Lord, we would have no light. And so we thank you for the scriptures. May we now understand them. May you give us eyes to see, hearts to understand. Uh, wisdom, Lord, to discern what they mean. So, Father, we ask these in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark's been answering the question, as you know at this point, who is Jesus? A few weeks ago, we saw Peter's great confession, right, that, that Jesus is the Christ. He's no longer just any ordinary man. He's no longer just another one of the boys. He is more than that. He is God incarnate. He is the Messiah. He's the awaited one. He's the one we have been waiting for to come, make all things new, to restore order, to bring light into darkness. That was what Peter said when he said, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And then last week we looked at uh, Jesus takes three of his disciples Peter, James, and John up to the, this mountaintop, this mountain experience. And there we see that the God of heaven broke asunder the skies and he entered in with Moses and Elijah. And there Christ was transfigured into so that they could see with eyes what they had already seen with eyes of faith. They would see with eyes of their bodies. And then you'll remember as they descended the hill last week, they looked at Jesus, they said, what about Elijah, right? The scribes are always telling us that Elijah must come first, so what, what do they mean by that? And, and Jesus responds, that, that was John the Baptist, y'all missed him. And what we see now is the, Jesus and the three disciples returning to the other nine. And we find ourselves in the middle of this argument. Look at it with me here, um, Mark chapter 9, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked him, what are you arguing about? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples, your homies, to, to cast it out, and they were not able. We return to the scene, Jesus and the three disciples returning to the other nine to find the disciples in utter failure. You'll remember in Mark chapter 9 that Jesus had given his disciples the power over evil spirits. He had given them the authority to cast these kind of things out. And yet we find the disciples here in utter failure. So the title of this morning, the message this morning is Learning from Failure. Learning from Failing. And in this, Mark has two things that he wants to drive home for us. Number one is God's miraculous power and human confidence in that power are inextricably linked. He said again, God's power, right? God is all-powerful. Nothing can stop him. He's all-powerful. And yet, human confidence in understanding that power for what it is are inextricably linked. And number two, that God's power is not an impersonal force to be manipulated, but a gift to be prayed for. You see, failure is never fun. Who here has failed? Three of you. 
and the rest of you are liars. So I like to say every week. Failure is never fun, and defeat is seldom something we actually take delight in. It can be painful, embarrassing, humiliating, and our response to this kind of failure is often life-changing, altering where we end up in life. You see, failure can make us bitter, or it can make us better. You see, we can take it as instructive and corrective and learn from it. You see, failure may show us, obviously I need to work harder if I want to succeed. Or, as I move ahead, I need help. I can't do this thing by myself. You see, that's what the disciples were learning from this. They were learning that there is no world where we graduate from the school of Jesus. There is no scenario where you take the class, graduate, and then move on with your life as if you have no need for the class anymore. There is no graduation ceremony from the school of Christ. It's this lesson the disciples need to learn. So many of us today need to learn it as well. But there's also another truth we must hold on to, and that is that in Christ, that through Christ, we can do all things who strengthens me. That's a, that's a promise. That's Philippians 4.13. But we can do nothing that really matters in life outside of Christ. I was sitting uh, with breakfast with a brother a couple weeks ago. Someone's been in the faith for uh, longer than I have been. A long time. Not that I've been in a long time, but... And I asked his brother, I said, what's something about your theology, something you've understood about God that's changed over time? And he kind of looked at me and he said, well, not, I kind of believe a lot of what I previously believed. And I said, well, what's one thing that you've kind of grown in, seen most growth in your life? And he said, oh, that's easy, Pastor. He said, prayer. I've learned how to pray over the years. And, and, and what that means, what that, what that said to me is that, that we, even if we've been walking with Jesus for 40, 50, 60 years, there's never a spot where we say, okay, Jesus, I got this. I don't need you anymore. There's an old hymn called Just When I Need Him Most. In the fourth stanza, it says something like this. Just when I need him, he is my all, answering when upon him I call, tenderly watching, lest I should fall. Disciples have a ways to go before they learn this lesson. A father with a suffering son, on the other hand, is about to understand the depths of this marvelous truth. Let's look at point number one. We will always need Jesus. Obey your scriptures. Verse, nine, verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, scribes arguing with them. Notice the disciples have descended the mountaintop. They've rejoined the others. You see, mountaintop experiences are wonderful, and we need them from time to time in our lives. Spiritual nourishment and the recharging of our spiritual batteries are a necessity in the Christian walk. However, God never intended for us to stay on this mountaintop experience. God never intended for us to stay on the mountaintop experiences of our faith. He wants us down here in the depths, down in the muck, down in the mire, preaching the gospel to and ministering among the hurting and the suffering. He wants us living with and serving real people in real time, devastated by the ravages of the fall and of sin. As his agents, listen, I don't know if you understand this, but you and I are agents of Christ in a broken world. You say, why doesn't he just come? Like, why 
Why doesn't God just come and make all things new? He's going to. But in the end time, in the, in the meantime, you and I are agents of redemptive love. What that means is when we go out there in the world, outside of the church gathering, outside of this, what we're doing here this morning, when we go out there, we are Christ to other people. You and I wear Christ when we go to work. You and I wear Christ in our homes. You and I wear Christ when we go to the gym. You and I wear Christ when we sit over coffee with unbelievers. We are Christ to them. We are His agents of redemptive love. And so we go in His name and with the promise that He is with us in the hard times. To forget this. To think that we no longer need Jesus on our side. That we no longer need His presence. Opens us up to all kinds of difficulties, challenges, and even failure. Look at what it says. Verse 14, the scribes were arguing with him. Don't miss that. It wasn't just that these, these cats had failed and floundered. They had failed in full display of those who were against Christ. They failed in full display of those who were against Christ. You and I will go out in the world and we will try to live without Christ and the world will see us fail. Peter wanted to stay on the mountaintop, but Jesus knew he was headed to Jerusalem and to the cross, and so he leads them down the mountain in verse 9 to rejoin the other disciples and to minister to the hurting on the way to Jerusalem and his passion. As soon as he descends, Jesus finds the disciples surrounded by a great crowd, arguing with the scribes. Furthermore, there is a demon-possessed child whom they were actually unable to help. No doubt the scribes seen this situation and were mocking the disciples over their failure to heal the boy. You say, oh, you, I thought Jesus was the Messiah. I thought you had all power over unclean spirits, and yet you can't heal this boy. Making fun of them. Deriding them. Probably used this lack of success to question Jesus' authority. After all, the messenger of a man is the man himself. Thus, their failure reflected badly, not only on them, but also on Christ. You see, we never mess up in a vacuum. We never sin in a vacuum. We hurt ourselves. We hurt the ones we love. We hurt the gospel, and we hurt the reputation of Christ when we sin. When this happens, we do not need to look to ourselves, but we need to look to Jesus. Notice that they, uh, the, the man quickly, the father, interrupts the scene. He says, look, your guys couldn't help me. And the disciples said, well, let us try again, Jesus. Let, let, us, let us give us one more shot. No. We look to Christ when we fall. We look to Christ when we stumble. Criticized by our detractors for our failures, we must then point others to Christ. So when we fail, when we fall, we not only look to Christ ourselves, but we point people to the God that we serve and to the one who can make all things new. And they saw him. Verse 15, they saw him, were amazed at him, and they ran to him. You see, we should never be discouraged when those who are against us point out our own flaws and failures. We should never be disappointed. We should never be taken aback. We should embrace it and say, amen, brother. Someone looks at you this week and says, ah, you know, you go to that church, all hypocrites. You say, amen. It's true. It's true. No one in here is perfect. No one in here is sinless. No one in here yesterday didn't sin and have need for repentance even now. 
Even as your pastor, there's, there's uh, sin in my life that daily I need to repent of and daily need to ask God to forgive me of. And the same is true with you. When our enemies, when the enemies of Christ, point out our falls and our failures, we say, it's true. But there's a God who's forgiven all things. There's never a world where we graduate from needing Jesus. Look at verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able to. Here we're, we're shown what the issue of the argument is. Someone from the crowd yells out to the answer, Jesus' question, but it wasn't just anyone. It was the father who brought his son to Jesus. A demon-possessed boy, he calls Jesus' teacher, notice, and informed him that his son has a spirit that made him mute. He caused violent seizures, and and it had been like this since his childhood. It regularly tried to destroy him. Thus, he came to Jesus. But first, he came to his disciples who were not able to help him. Greatly disappointed, distraught, so much so that arguments had begun to arise. Like, just imagine this father for a minute with me. Just scriptures over here. Let's go over here. Like, imagine this father bringing, he's heard the stories, right? Everyone's heard of Jesus at this point. He's heard the stories that, you know, Jesus and his homies can heal people like this. No, no doubt, like, his neighbors have come to him. It's like, have you taken them to Jesus yet? Like, have you taken them to his disciples yet? They're casting out demons. They're doing all kinds of work. Maybe try taking them to Jesus and his disciples. And the father takes his son, his young son, to the disciples. And there he says, hey, can you heal him? And imagine. One of the disciples stands up, maybe Andrew. He says, demon, be gone. And the child convulses harder. Like, imagine if you were one of those disciples, like, I thought we we could do this. I thought we could cast out demons. Like, imagine the failure and the weight. And now, all of a sudden, the scribes who have witnessed the whole thing have said, yeah, we kind of knew it from the beginning. This is all a sham. It's all lies. It's all all make-believe. And so Jesus comes down the mountain, and he says, what's going on here? What are you guys arguing about this? His, his, like, imagine the, the man, he's having his son here, still demon-possessed, and he says, your disciples couldn't heal him, Jesus. I heard that you guys could do this, and, and they couldn't do it. A couple lessons here for us. Number one, we see that demons are real beings, not simply mythological creatures. Jesus clearly believes in the demonic. We all have what's called, what the, the smart, smarter people than me call the plausibility structures. Who's heard of that term? Plausibility structures. Let me, let me give you an example of what a plausibility structure is. Imagine I go home after church today and I open up my cabinet and there is a package of cookies. Immediately, my plausibility structure tells me that my wife has purchased cookies from the store yesterday and brought them home and put them in the cupboard. That's my plausibility structure. It already rules out a whole bunch of other things. Namely, that there's this unionized little elves who created cookies and left them in my cupboard for me. My plausibility structure doesn't allow for that kind of nonsense. And neither is yours, no matter what the commercials try to tell you. 
So that's a plausibility structure. So, right? so a plausibility structure will automatically say what can be true and what cannot be true. And we all operate under certain plausibility structures. Generally, these are created from experience or in our Western culture, what, what, what we would call science. Right? It's why that's become a nonsensical question to say, can you prove that God exists? Right? Because most of Western plausibility structures don't allow for it because it can't be proven. You see what I'm saying? You see where I'm going? So there's plausibility structures that you and I are always operating with, whether we realize it or not. Let me give you another one closer to home for me. Because I oftentimes, when, whenever my kids are sick, I'm like, you're fine. Whenever my wife's sick, I'm like, you're fine. Take a nap, drink some coffee. Let's get back to it, right? Because my plausibility structure says that, uh, that most of the time when we feel sick, it's usually just our, all in my, our minds. Like, that's what my plausibility structure kind of operates under, right? So to think one's sick is to be sick, right? So to think oneself well is to be well, and right? This causes all kinds of marital strife in my family. <laughs> the Lord's still working on me. I told you I need to repent daily. And so there's this plausibility structure, right? Whenever we come across these kind of passages in scriptures that we, we kind of aren't sure what to do with, right? Because our Western world says it's not demon-possessed. It's, these are the same symptomatics uh, of a person with epilepsy. And so we say, oh, you know, Jesus, he wasn't really casting out a demon, right? He was just healing epilepsy. Our plausibility structure doesn't allow for things like demonic possession. And yet the scriptures are crystal clear. The demonic world is real. It's not simply make-believe. So we see, number one, that demons are real. Number two, that demons desire to inflict pain and death. Number three, demons are capable of inflicting physical suffering. This boy had symptoms, like I said, resembling epilepsy. Matthew chapter 17 goes a little bit more in depth. In our own strength, number four, we are helpless against the supernatural powers of the demonic. Number five, spiritual victories in the past are no guarantee we will be victorious today, especially when we operate with faith in ourselves rather than faith in Christ. Number six, when all human efforts have been exhausted, we can turn to Jesus. Counter to our sinfulness and weaknesses, he is where we should start. He, should, he is where we should turn from the start. There's a fine balance, right, between this. Because what I don't want you to hear me say is that, oh, you know, church, you know what, Pastor, you're right. You know, on my way to church today, I was getting in the car, and I noticed I had a flat tire, and I said to myself, the devil's really fighting me today. It may be true. But my first line of defense is first, see if you had any nails laying around. Maybe it was just silliness. But there's a fine balance, right? Because we don't want to go too far like, nah, there's, there's no such thing as demons. But at the same time, we don't want to say, well, there's a demon in every bush. You see what I'm saying here? So it's wisdom and prudence and continually leaning on the scriptures to know what's true. We need Christ. We need Christ when corrected in our own defeats. Look at verse 19. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. You see, correction is seldom pleasant. I was going through this with Myra last night, almost one and a half years old. And she was crying, and I was trying to explain to her that I love her, and yet she's still getting a spanking. 
And on and on she cried, and I kept trying to say, listen, I love you, and the Father disciplines those he loves, and so I love you, so I'm going to discipline her as she was trying to nosedive off the back of the couch. Correction is seldom pleasant. Hard words may cut, but they can also cure. Jesus is tough and direct, notice, in his rebuke to his own disciples here. First, he calls them a faithless generation. You see, this word generation is normally used of Israel as an unbelieving nation, and in particular, its leaders. Second, by, by means of parallel rhetorical questions, right, Jesus asked two questions. How long will I be with you? How long must I bear with you? He's pressing on his disciples. Time and time again, we've seen this. This isn't the first time, even in the Gospel according to Mark, where Jesus has pressed on his disciples, wondering why they don't believe. Why don't you get it? Why aren't you understanding this? Faithless. You see, Mark vividly captures for us in the Scriptures the pressures and frustrations of Christ's life in these verses. On the mountaintop, he had faced with the spiritual short-sightedness of his disciples. Here, in the valley, he was confronted by their unbelief. You see, whenever the disciples are separated from Jesus, they get in trouble and experience a crisis. Listen, the same is true of you and I. Whenever we separate from Jesus, whenever we move away from the Scriptures, whenever we move away from the gathered body of Christ, that, that you and I get in trouble and experience crisis. You see, we never advance beyond our need for Jesus. So we will always need Jesus. Not only will we always need Jesus, we will always need faith. The, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says it like this. It says, without faith... It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he, is a, that he rewards those who seek him. So the question becomes, so if, it, if it takes faith to believe, if it takes faith to, to make things happen, then, then how much belief, how much faith do we need? Do we need a lot? Must it be perfect? No. See, Christ says the faith of a tiny mustard seed will do just fine. You see, the key is not the depth of our faith, but the direction of our faith. What is important is not the potency of our faith, but the person our faith is in. A little faith in a great Savior gets amazing results. I learned this in college probably the best. Because up until this point in my early Christian life, I began to say things like, I have faith. Like, like my faith is so Great, right? Because that's, that was the measure of, of your Christianity back then was uh, like, well, how much faith do you have? Well, I have all the faith in the world, brother. I believe. Until one day I was challenged by, by an older brother in Christ who said something to me like, does it matter how great your faith is or does it matter how uh, great the person is in whom you have that faith? You see, it's not, the, it's not our faith in and of itself which is great. It's the one in whom we have faith that is great. Look at verse 19. He answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. The time for playing games has come to an end here. 
The demon certainly understands this because as soon as he sees Jesus, he convulses the boy harder. This torture has gone on since childhood and has occasionally been nearly fatal. Out of sheer desperation, the father now turns to the only possible source of hope and help, Jesus. He begs, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. Though the man's faith is weak and small, he is at least looking in the right direction, asking the right questions, asking the right person for help. You see, unlike the leper in Mark chapter 1, the father raised not a would question, but a could question. You see, the leper knew Jesus could help, but would he? The father believed Jesus would help, but could he? He's about to find out. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Notice this Jesus' first response here. One of surprise. If he can, everything is possible to the one who believes. Divine ability, the power of Christ, has not changed in this moment. It's not a problem. What is the problem then? Human unbelief. There is a reliable bridge between human weakness on the one hand and divine sufficiency and power on the other. And that bridge is called faith, trust, dependency. Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man who takes refuge in Him. This is what Jesus is calling this Father to do. He's saying, come, taste, see, take refuge. And the father responds, notice his response, he says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Right? You've got to love his sense of honesty, his sense of humility. He was effectively saying, he says, I know my faith is weak. Partial. My faith is incomplete. It's not perfect. And yet, I trust you, Christ. Only you. If you don't deliver my son, then he will not be delivered. Help me in spite of me. And so the crowd begins to form due to all this commotion. And seeing this, Jesus then banishes the vile demon and places a no trespassing sign over the child's soul. The demon has no choice but to obey. But as he leaves, he convulses the boy again terribly this time. The boy collapses like a corpse and must, most thought he had died. However, Jesus took him by the hand. Literally, this text reads, Jesus raised him and he was resurrected. Jesus here provides insight into the meaning of his own death and resurrection. Satanic powers bring death, but divine power brings resurrection life. This is what dependent faith can see. You see, the dethroning of Satan in all of life is always a reversal of death and an affirmation of life. The dethroning of Satan is always a reversal of death and an affirmation of life. How many of you have ever brought an unbelieving person, a friend, a loved one, a a child, a mother, uh, a father, to hear the preaching of the gospel? 
and nothing happens. Nothing. And you go home and you think, man, why don't they just believe? Just believe it's true. Listen, the, the mind cannot believe what the heart does not believe. The mind cannot accept as truth what the heart does not believe to be true. And we must guard ourselves in a world of uh, false conversions which say, uh, well, you know, little, little Johnny was, you know, he, he said he was a sinner and needed Christ when he was five years old. But, you know, and I know he's out here living like the world now and says he doesn't love God, says he doesn't like, but, you know, remember... Little Johnny at the altar at VBS. He said he was saved. Listen, no, he's not. He's not. You see, oftentimes what we try to do is this, this like comforting mechanism. Right? Where we say, well, you know, that one time they prayed a prayer. Listen, it's not a one-time thing that saves us. We believe at one moment in time, and yet it's not that prayer that saves us. Listen, if, if we all believe that, then we're all witches. If we all believe just saying a few words like saves us and it doesn't matter how we live afterwards, then we've fooled ourselves. You see, it's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing life of deeper love of Christ. It's an ongoing walk with Christ. So much so that if I was to walk away from the faith, if I was to leave church today and never return and reject Christ and the Scriptures, the Scriptures say of me that I actually never believed. Book of 1 John says if they leave us, then we know they were never of us. You see, it's not merely saying, well, I believe, right? A decision to follow Christ cannot come out of thin air. A decision to follow Christ cannot come out of thin air. Now listen, we can make a decision to repent of our sins. That's true. We can make a decision to to study the scriptures, to know Christ more. We can do those things as decisions. And listen, church family, we should do those things. And yet, we cannot make a decision just to believe. It takes a work of God. It takes a work of God in us to cause us to see. So you see, we never leave this need for faith in our own lives. We will always need faith. And number three, we will always need prayer. Look at verse 28. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said to them, verse 29, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You you see, the disciples may have learned a little bit about contrasting the previous story of the transfiguration with the healing of the young boy. You see, in the first, it was on a mountaintop, and yet in the second, it was in the valley. In the transfiguration, the kingdom of God is on full display. And in the story of the convulsing boy, the kingdom of Satan is on display. You see, in the first, a son is radiantly glorified, and in the second, a son is terribly demonized. A father is honored in his son in the first story, and in the second story, a father is, is horrified by his son. The disciples are confused and lack understanding. In the first and in the second, the disciples are defeated and lack power. In the first, a lesson about the future, and in the second, a lesson about faith. In the first, a display of divine power. And in the second, a directive for human 
prayer? What went wrong for the disciples? Why didn't their attempt at binding the strong man, as what Mark 3.27 says, work? Why didn't it work? You see, this introspection that the disciples are beginning to go down as they ask Jesus privately this question is a healthy spiritual discipline that you and I should learn. You see, when it causes us to examine our own weaknesses and confront our own limitations, we should ask God, why couldn't I defeat that sin, Jesus? Like, why couldn't I have enough faith in that moment? Like, why did I doubt you through these trials? You see, presumptuous self-sufficiency may be viewed as a great strength by the world out there, but it is deadly for our spiritual lives. To pretend that we have it all together is deadly. Right, if you walk into here and you put on the mask of church, say, ah, you know, life's great, Pastor. Things are great, fantastic. And all the while, back home, your house is burning to the ground. You're not helping yourself. You see, the disciples failed big time. It was public. It brought ridicule. It cast doubt on the Master himself and on the mission he came to fulfill. So when Jesus initiated reflection and debriefing, they asked, why couldn't we drive out the demon?" see, this question betrays where their sense of confidence was actually coming from. It suggests a spirit of pride rooted in past accomplishments. You see, in Mark 6, verse 7, it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. They believed they should have been sufficient for this kind of work. They're saying, We did it before, Jesus, and we will do it again. But it didn't work this time. Why? Failure leads them to question themselves. And this is a good thing, as it should drive all of us, when we fail in our own walk with Christ, back to Jesus. Jesus responds with this powerful spiritual insight. He said, this kind can come out by nothing except prayer. The phrase this kind refers to casting out demons and all other spiritual conflicts of this nature. He's not saying some demon exorcism require prayer, but others do not. He is saying that whatever we take into the spiritual battlefield, if we go in in our own strength, our own pride, our own self-sufficiency, then we've already lost. Faith bridges the gap between divine omnipotence and human weakness. And that faith is experienced and exercised through prayer. Could this be This reason between faith and prayer and and being able to do this kind of work, could this be why prayer is one of the most difficult of the spiritual disciplines? Could this be why we don't see greater things in our church, in our missions, in our personal lives? Is this why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing? You see, the power of prayer is obviously not going to be experienced if we don't what? If we don't pray. If we don't pray, then there's a power of prayer that will not be experienced in our lives. Tim Keller says that the the prayer of this father is characterized by honesty, helplessness, hopefulness, specificity, and passion. And these character traits of believing prayer can be summed up into one word, and that is humility. Humility. You see, we, you and I, we don't pray 
because we think we can do it by ourselves. You and I think that we don't need Jesus anymore. We don't need faith anymore. We've, we've come along enough in our Christian walk that we don't need this anymore. And yet, we never graduate from this school. You see, it all depends on Jesus. If He acts, we're delivered. If Jesus doesn't act, you and I are lost. You see, lessons learned from failing may hurt us. But they hurt us in a good kind of way, depending on what we learn from them. If in our failures we are driven away from Jesus, if in our failures you and I begin to doubt our faith, if in our failures we find ourselves praying less instead of more, we have actually not learned the lessons that we need to. You see, lessons learned from failure should drive us to Jesus. Lessons and failure should increase our faith in the one who stands steadfast. Lessons and failures should humble us enough to drive us to our knees. Today, you and I, we don't have Jesus here in the flesh with us. But through the gift of prayer, he is only a word, a thought, a moment away. See, remember what Jesus said to Thomas. Because you have seen me, you have believed. But for those who believe without seeing me are blessed. That's you and I. You and I have never physically seen Christ. I don't care if he showed up on an image of toast in your kitchen. You haven't seen Christ. You see, we believe. Lord, help our unbelief should be our daily prayer. This gives us the shield of faith with which we will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So this kind of understanding that we always need Jesus, we always need faith, and we always need prayer. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we pray you would convict us, each one of us, Wherever in our lives and in our walks we have thought we have graduated, where we thought we have learned enough, read enough, done enough, studied enough, talked enough, Father, where we think we no longer need you. Father, convict us right now. Drive us to repentance. Give us faith that comes from you only. And Lord, lead us back into your presence through our own failings, through our own failures. Back to you, the the author and finisher of our faith. May we keep pressing in. May we keep searching. May we keep praying for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing. uh, Turn your eyes.